Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast, where we discuss films from every genre. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. Welcome back, listeners, to the sixth installment in our Star Trek retrospective series. Today we are discussing Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. This is your co-host Corbin. And I'm Brad. The sixth film, and might I add, the final film to have all of the original cast members from the previous, not just the previous films, but also the original 60s television series. And this film came out December 6th, 1991. And it is the 25th anniversary since the original series, so it's kind of a milestone for them. Wow, that is. Now, listeners, if you haven't already listened to the previous five installments in this retrospective series, you're not going to want to miss those episodes. So go ahead and click pause right now. Go ahead and search in the archives, and you'll be able to find those episodes and hear our thoughts on those previous films. And also, if you want some more bonus content, like bonus podcast episodes, our own film commentaries, movie reviews, our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, Q&As with us, head on over to our Patreon page. That link is in the description below. Also in the description below is links to our Facebook page and our Twitter page and the official website where you can sign up through email. That way you never miss a beat. Now, director Nicholas Mayer, who did write and direct Star Trek The Wrath of Khan, which many consider to be the best in the series, And he did also write uh, episode four, The Voyage Home. This time he's directing. He didn't expect to direct, but they thought, well, you might as well direct because you did one of the best jobs of the series. Now, he didn't just write this film as well. Denny Martin also wrote it. And the score was done by Cliff Edelman, who had never really done any movies really prior. He was kind of an up-and-coming guy. He hasn't done much since. He did the Leap of Faith movie Hmm. with uh, Steve Martin. Yeah, I liked that. I remember that. That's a fun comedy. He also did the score for the Lizzie McGuire movie and Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. Totally different from the score. Different genres, yeah. Now, this film was nominated for two Oscars. Best Sound Effects Editing and Best Makeup. So, of the entire franchise, the entire franchise has been nominated for nine Oscar nominations across six films. That's fairly impressive. It's pretty impressive, yeah. The current IMDb score for the film is a 7.2, which is a major leap from the previous film's 5.5. And the critical rating is an astronomical leap. It sits at an 81% approval rating from critics, whereas the previous film, which you can hear our thoughts on whether we thought it was good or bad, if William Shatner's directorial take on the Star Trek series worked or not, it, critics didn't think so. It had a 22%. That's pretty low. It's incredibly low. Now, the Metacritic score for this film is 65, the previous film 43. Shockingly, I'm not quite sure if audiences really understood the cinema score, how that worked. And just for you listeners who don't know, when an audience comes out of a theater, they're given a card and they punch out anywhere from A plus to F. And then they hand it back to the people and they composite those scores together. And that's what the audience score is. So that's probably the closest thing you'll truly know to what an audience thought because those people were in the movie theater. They gave it an A-, minus, a pretty good score, but mm-hmm. they also gave Star Trek V an A-. minus. So <laughs> It's pretty hard to compare those two. It's kind of hard to believe. Now, the film did have a budget of $27 million. Budget has always been a contention with the Star Trek series because they're never sure if it's going to make very much money 
because every other movie does poorly and so they're always cutting the budget or trying to find ways to cut the budget but it did do very well domestically it grossed 74.8 million foreign markets 22 million for a worldwide total of 96.8 million so yeah star trek 6 did great at the box office of course it opened at number one with 18 million the top five movies for that weekend were star trek 6 in number one the adams family movie in number two my girl beauty and the beast yes the disney animated what's come to be considered a classic and the remake the martin scorsese remake of cape fear now as far as this movie's economic ranking in the series adjusting for inflation it's 10th lowest of the 13 so it did do quite a bit better than the last film but it didn't reach the numbers of the first through fourth films interesting now once again they were revisiting the idea of possibly doing a prequel they've always wanted to do a prequel film and originally that's what this was going to be about how kirk and spock met and it would be like mccoy sitting around a cadet campfire type thing recalling the story of how the original star trek crew came together but paramount didn't want that quite yet because they still wanted to use the original actors so walter koenig also had an idea for a script and for those of you who don't know walter koenig is I, I always get him confused but he's who is he Chekhov. Chekhov. that's right Chekhov had an idea for a script where the romulans joined with starfleet to go to war with the klingons and the original crew would be forced to retire because they couldn't meet fitness tests except spock did meet the tests and Spock and his new crew would be captured by what Koenig described as the things, the aliens from Ridley Scott's film Alien. Fascinating. He would say, now of course it wouldn't be directly tied to sure. that. He's saying, imagine those things. Yeah. So can you imagine Star Trek battling the xenomorphs from Alien, those, those ugly things? I actually would love to see that. That would be kind of fun to see. And Spock and his crew would be captured by those. Kirk and the original crew would save them. But they would all die in the end, actually. Wow. Of yeah. the six films. That's, that's a bold move. The only ones that wouldn't die would be Spock and McCoy. Wow. That's a real bold move to kill off Captain Kirk. Yeah. It, it would be... I don't think it would go over very well with the fans. And Paramount... I don't think so either. Now, Paramount said, okay, thanks, Kone. Cool idea, but... We'll keep the, searching. The idea has some merits. I don't like it entirely. So ultimately, Nimoy and Mayer, who wrote the script, they came up with the idea of the wall coming down in outer space. This is not long after mm -hmm. Ronald Reagan's presidency. Yes, that's true. Within a couple of years of whole wall coming down in Eastern Europe. So, and it, I, from what I understand, it was predominantly Nimoy's. Leonard Nimoy's idea. What if we brought the Soviet Union, the end of the Soviet Union, to yeah. the Star Trek series in space to kind of make it topical, very Cold War-esque. Mm -hmm. And clearly Starfleet would be the USA and the Klingons would be the Russians. Right. And even the opening of the film where Praxis, the planet Praxis blows up, that's of course a direct nod to Chernobyl. Chernobyl, right. 
So originally the film was going to open with each of the crew. They would be rounded up out of unhappy retirement for one final mission. And the original scenes demonstrated who the characters were and what they did when they weren't on the Enterprise. And it added some humanity to the characters. There was also an interesting thing where in the original drafts of the script, Spock plays Polonius in a Vulcan version of Hamlet while... Sulu drives a taxi cab in an overcrowded metropolis. Also, Captain Sulu would be the one to bring his friends out of retirement, and Spock's whereabouts are classified. Kirk was to have married Carol Marcus, who was going to be reprised as B.B. Besh from The Wrath of Khan, and there was also going to be Kirk was leading a settled life before this special envoy arrives to his door, and McCoy is drunk at a posh medical <laughs> d dinner. Scott is teaching engineering while the bird of prey from the voyage home is pulled from San Francisco Bay. Uhura hosts a call-in radio show and is glad to escape and check off his playing at a chess club. And the reason they cut all of this was they felt like that would be too expensive to have all of these mm -hmm. different locations and right, shots. Right. Also, not very exciting. I think because yeah. the previous film opened with them camping and not a very exciting way to open a Star Trek film, right, I would say. Right. Well, uh, plus I like the idea of them being just closer to retirement rather than already in retirement. It seemed to make a little more sense to their mission. I think so, too. I think that would be a much better way to send them off is because the film is three months before. Right. Right. They're like, We're, we've only got three months left, and I like that idea much better. Of course, Roddenberry is never satisfied with any of these films, it seems like. Roddenberry sounds like a kind of a difficult person, where it's his vision, it's his way, or the highway. That so, was his baby in the beginning. It was, and they did let him on to do yeah. a lot with the first Star Trek film. Yeah. It was very boring. People didn't like it very much. And so that's why Paramount said, okay, you're executive consultant. We'll call you when you need you. And apparently he was just kind of cantankerous. And he argued with Mayer about the script. Ultimately, they didn't listen to him very much. And Roddenberry didn't live to see the film's release. I wondered about that because it said it was dedicated to him. Yep, that's how the film opens. The second time a Star Trek film opens in kind of a in memoriam because the first was to the crew of the Challenger space shuttle. Right, that blew right. Up. Roddenberry did see a cut of the film beforehand. And, that's good. Uh, he didn't like it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> not so good. <laughs> he was mad. He was like, we have to cut half of the movie. Rewrites. <laughs> Poor uh, guy. I know, it's sad. So he did die of heart failure on October 24th, 1991. And according to the film's producer and one of the biographers, Roddenberry supposedly approved a final version of the film. Hmm. But from Shatner and Nimoy's memoirs, he didn't. So there's kind of conflicting evidence yeah. on what Roddenberry thought of the final Star Trek film he saw hmm. before his passing. Now this was kind of interesting that Paramount considered spending close to $240,000 to send Roddenberry's ashes into space. Wow. The move had the backing of the fans, but ultimately Paramount decided against it until 1997 when his remains were taken to space with 22 other people's remains fascinating so technically roddenberry is floating out there in space yeah and someday when jesus comes back roddenberry will be resurrected <laughs> on the go. on the planet vulcan <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs>
to promote the film in the 25th anniversary of Star Trek, this was kind of interesting because they do this now, especially with like Marvel films and big events. Paramount did hold a marathon screening of the previous five films. Great idea. Yeah, in 44 select U.S. and Canadian cities. At the very end of the 12, all 12 hours, there was footage for The Undiscovered Country. And that that kind of makes me think of they're re-releasing the movie It in theaters right now. And at the end of it, you get to watch eight minutes of the next movie. Uh, So you can see these ideas that were started even back in the Mm -hmm. early 90s. And right before... The film's release, the day before the premiere, the core cast was inducted into Grauman's Chinese Theater and signed their names on the Hollywood Boulevard. Wow, that's great. That's a big honor, and that sounds pretty exciting. Now, we're not going to give you any spoilers just yet as to how the film ends. Right before it was released, and even so after the release, and clearly the film was very popular, the cast was split on the possibility of, of them coming back. So Shatner, Nimoy, and Kelly said that the film would be their last, while uh, the rest of the cast wanted to come back. They lobbied, say, we want to come back for our roles. Let's keep it going as long as we can. Yeah, and I we haven't seen the next film, so I don't right. know who will, make, who will make an appearance. Maybe they'll have a cameo. I'm not quite sure. But nevertheless, that is kind of interesting that they still wanted to come back for a seventh film in the mid-90s. It shows you the passion that they all had, really. That's I, I think being the, the other characters being the secondary roles, perhaps it makes sense that they just they didn't want to give up as much. The others had kind of had their fill, maybe. Especially because in this film, I think finally certain characters get more to do than, and I'm yes. specifically talking about Mr. Scott. Yeah, Scotty. Mr. Scott. Scotty. He does do a lot more in this film. He does. Than he has in the he past does. films. Well, listeners, we are going to get into spoilers for Star Trek VI. If you haven't yet seen the film and you don't want to spoil it for you, go ahead and click pause. Go ahead and uh, it is streaming right now. It might be on Hulu, but we watched it on Amazon Prime Video. So go ahead, stream it there or rent it wherever you like to rent movies and come back and click play and we'll be ready to talk about the film. Captain Sulu, reprised by George Takai now is the captain of the USS Excelsior. He and his crew feel the massive shockwaves of the explosion that destroyed half of the planet Praxis. He relays the information to Starfleet where back on Earth, Kirk, reprised by William Shatner, and the rest of his crew are told the Klingon Empire has only 50 years left to survive before their culture and way of life is finished in the galaxy. They've been falling apart, but the explosion of Praxis is the final nail in their coffin. So Starfleet must decide whether to let the Klingons perish or to bring them into harmony with the rest of the galaxy. McCoy, replies by DeForest Kelly, claim the Klingons are the trash of the galaxy. And Kirk seems to want nothing to do with them, especially because the crew of the Enterprise is retiring in three months. Not only that, he will never forgive the Klingon people for the murder of his son David. In a surprise move, Spock reprised by Leonard Nimoy, commands Kirk and the Enterprise to accept the Klingon envoy, which is led by Chancellor Gorkin, played by David Warner, who is playing a different role from the previous film. Kirk begrudgingly accepts the task, and when they do meet the envoy, it is quite awkward. The Klingon Kirk butts heads with the most is the overly hostile General Chang, played by Christopher Plummer. Chang loves ancient quotes, one of which Kirk recognizes off the top of his head as that of Hitler's. Chancellor Gorkin, on the other hand, recalls Shakespeare's quote, 
from a play Hamlet about the undiscovered country, which he deems to be the future where their people can live in harmony. That harmony is quickly shattered when the Enterprise fires upon the Klingon bird of prey, but without Kirk's command. Not only that, but two Enterprise officers wearing space masks massacre the Klingon crew while in zero gravity. The crew of the Enterprise is confounded. Newcomer to the Enterprise, whom Spock hopes to succeed him, that being Lieutenant Valeris, played by Kim Cattrall, does her best to help the crew solve the mystery. Ultimately, Kirk and McCoy decide to beam aboard the ship to provide medical aid and get to the bottom of the mystery. Sadly, McCoy isn't able to save Gorkin, and to make matters worse, Chang imprisons Kirk and McCoy for the assassination of the Klingon Chancellor. They are put on trial before the Klingons, where they are sentenced for to life to work in the mines of the frozen asteroid Rapintha. Back on Earth, the Klingons and Romulans concur before the Federation president, played by Kurtwood Smith, that Kirk and his crew purposefully conspired to assassinate the Klingons due to an incriminating captain's log of Kirk's in which he exclaims his hatred for their race. Back on the Enterprise, the plot thickens as to how exactly the ship could have fired on the Klingons when all of their missiles are accounted for. They all determined that a cloaked Klingon bird of prey must have hit the other bird of prey, but that's impossible because the bird of prey can't fire when cloaked. Meanwhile, in the mines, Kirk and McCoy have to battle with the toughest inmates to gain respect and stay alive. They befriend a beautiful shapeshifter named Martia. She helps them to escape, but they soon learn it was all a ruse in order for her sentence to be erased if she offered the two up for the Klingons to have a reason to murder them. Martia shapeshifts to fight Kirk literally face to face, but it is her downfall because the Klingons shoot her. Thankfully, Spock placed a tracker on Kirk before he left the Enterprise. They beam Kirk and McCoy aboard back to safety. Thanks to Scotty, reprised by James Doohan, looking around he finds the outfits of the two assassins, and shortly thereafter they all find their bodies. Kirk and Spock deduce it was Valeris all along who had betrayed them. She stole Kirk's captain's log and commanded the two Starfleet officers to assassinate the Chancellor. Spock only fully finds out this information, by mind-melding with her and by doing this, he learns of an even deeper plot. Admiral Cartwright, reprised by Brock Peters, along with Chang and the Romulans, are planning to murder the Federation president at the peace talks to start a new civil war and plunge the galaxy into further turmoil. The Enterprise and the Excelsior, led by Sulu, race against time to make it to the planet where the peace talks are being held. They battle it out in space against Chang's invisible Klingon bird of prey, and barely defeat him before their own ship is destroyed. They then quickly beam directly into the peace talks to stop the would-be Klingon hitman and place Admiral Cartwright under arrest. Back on the Enterprise, the crew is commanded by Starfleet to return to base to be decommissioned. But the crew will have one last adventure, as Kirk tells Chekhov, reprised by Walter Koenig, to go to the first start of the right and straight on till morning. As Kirk gives a heartwarming, tear-jerking send-off as the crew of the Enterprise is framed beautifully in a wide shot as credits roll. One of my thoughts is I think this movie could have been better served as a almost 24 style TV show. I think that would be really cool if they made the Star Trek series into like a show like 24 because they've got a lot of different storylines here. Yes, to that's go. really good. That's a great idea. Especially because Jack Bauer is always dealing with who's going to be assassinated. Mm -hmm. Jack Bauer's getting framed. He's getting shanghaied, kind of like Kirk. I saw a very a great parallel. I saw a very 24-ish plot in here, and I think that would have made the movie more exciting for me if if we could have even a similar plot maybe in the future and get some of those writers from the 24 
TV show on here. Well, I think that's a great idea. That would be a kind of a fun idea to yeah. to think about. But immediately, I do feel like this Star Trek film has stepped up into modernity. It did. It made the step up in many ways. I noticed we we noticed it right away with the graphics. Yeah, I, I couldn't even believe the leap that they made. It was really surprising because it, it was just feeling old. It was feeling like they were stuck in the 70s right. or maybe even early 80s somehow. It just mm-hmm. wasn't having a really fresh new look to to really revitalize itself. And that gave me hope. And you said you also really liked the new score for the film in the opening credits. I did. I did. I liked it. Of course, it was uh, much improved from the previous one. But I really, really liked it. It is. It's an ominous score, yet it does intrigue me as what's to come. It's immediately making the statement, this is a new Star Trek. It, it, it had, and I even it felt, as I heard that score at the beginning, it, it just had a, it's funny how we compare things, but it had a Star Wars feel to it in the beginning. It just made me feel that, a little bit of that. Star Wars has a, does a great job of their score leading you to this feeling that, wow, something's going to happen. It really did. I really was questioning, this is kind of a little more ominous of a tone. Where is this movie going to go? Because last time it was really cheesy. It was. With Kirk climbing El Capitan. I was just so... Those two movies are not even in the same league. I mean, they're just incredibly different. And I was very surprised to see Sulu was in charge of the Excelsior and we loved the graphics. And I will say a little bit something about the cinematography, though. For the most part, it's good. And the opening scenes, it felt kind of derivative of what a 90s film would look like. I could tell, oh, this was a 90s film, mm-hmm. especially when they are having the zero gravity shootout in space and the Klingons yeah. are getting shot up. That felt like they were almost trying to make it into a horror movie. <laughs> yeah. Into yeah, a, the, the little space drops of gra- blood with no gravity. It just really seemed a little macabre and horror style. It did. And if you watch some 90s horror films, they're not very intense at all, but they do kind of have these odd Dutch angles and, and close-ups and... Yeah. It's a little cheesy, and I, I did learn why that Klingon blood was basically pink goo, is because oh, they were worried the Motion Picture Association would give them an R rating ah, for having tons of blood being very shot and floating around. Yeah, I could see that happening if they did it look more you know real and realistic. And I'm I gotta say I'm I'm pulled in. The first act pulls mm-hmm. me in mm-hmm. as to. This is kind of going to be one of their last two Raws. This planet has blown up. And I think it's kind of shocking. The Klingons are pretty much going to go extinct. And do does the Enterprise put aside their differences to help them out? I think it's like posing the question, mm-hmm. if the Soviet Union is going to fall, are we still going to give them some kind of aid? Which is true. The U.S. did give aid to East Germany right. still. right. So these are interesting questions being brought up. I will say, though, the second act is where the film disappoints me because it does seem like they have lost intriguing ideas. This is where I think they could have benefited from maybe studying some more mystery novels, some Agatha Christie, Mm -hmm. you know, Murder on the Orient Express type things to give us more to chew on with this whole 
murder mystery plot because that is the main drive of the movie. Now, they're trying to supplement that with Kirk and McCoy, you know, fighting it out in the prison. Yeah, it just, you're right. You're absolutely right. But every one of these Star Trek movies, it seems, has a real pacing issue. It's whether they get to the second act and it just begins to drag. It really does, which, once again, I did say this felt like a TV show plot stretched yes. out into a movie. And these movies aren't even two hours long. Right. It's like an hour and 45 minutes, yet somehow it does. It's because they, unfortunately don't really know how to provide more mystery yeah. into the second act and keep that going. There's got to be more clues than <laughs> Scotty finding stuff in an air yeah. vent because yeah. it's rattling. Yeah. Now, I think what probably could have made this film a bit more gripping is Kim Cattrall was not going to be this new character of Valeris. They were going to bring back Lieutenant Savick. Hmm. Interesting. Whom we last saw very briefly in the beginning of Star Trek Four. I think that would have been much better because we know Savick. Right. And Savick would have been interesting how Spock was like, of course, I want you to succeed me. We've been on a lot of missions together. And then that would have been a great betrayal for Savick to have done that, come back only to, to be the villain. Mm -hmm. It's not as emotional of an impact because we don't know Kim Cattrall's character. She's just a brand new character. Why introduce a brand new character like that at the very end of a, a series when they could have brought Savick back? I don't understand why they didn't. I'm almost wondering if they were a little afraid to take that risk and turn turn us against one of the main characters. Hmm. I understand when the director and writer Mayer brought this up to Roddenberry. Roddenberry said, no way. I hate that idea. Hmm. And Mayer said, I'm the one who created the character. Hmm. I can do whatever I want with That's her. Good. But I think Paramount ultimately rejected it. I think just because Star Trek usually, from what I understand, they don't go there. Hmm. Um, when I did watch one of the original episodes where we first are introduced to Khan, mm -hmm. one of the Enterprise does turn against them, but she wasn't a regular. She was just uh, yes. just kind of a throwaway member because I think they love the original characters too much to make any of them. Yeah to make us turn against them. And of course they're not going to have it be Uhura or right, Chekhov right. No, and ruin not. it there at the end for us. The other thing I thought is maybe they were going for more of a TV episode type style just to kind of give us a nostalgic send-off and kind of harken back to one of the plots from the 60s and kind of give them something more like that, but then kind of make it a little bigger, have more stakes to it. Uh, what did you think of Christopher Plummer's character? I was really surprised he was in this movie. He's a big name for a, a Star Trek movie. Classic actor. I felt he was a good choice. I was surprised to see him there, but I felt he was a good choice. He did the part well. He did act well, and I knew Christopher Plummer is always top-notch. He's a consummate actor. Yeah, he'll never give in a bad performance, so I knew we were in for something really good. I do wish, though, he could have reached the heights of Khan. Yeah, that's true. He didn't. He didn't quite reach that uh, that menacing stage. He was harsh, but not. I mean, Khan was evil. Yeah, <laughs> he just had that. Uh, and you would think a Klingon, you know, could reach that level. And were you very surprised to find out he was kind of the mastermind behind it all? Along? Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't really. Uh, nothing led me that direction. It it didn't. But it wasn't this great surprise either. No, I didn't find it to be a very big surprise. And the same with Kim Cattrall's character. Right, I thought, right. ultimately, I'm like, okay, well, 
Yeah. Who else is it going to be? Yeah, exactly. It's going to yeah. be Chang and her, and it all seemed like a bit of a setup. So the twists weren't too yeah. shocking. Yeah, that's exactly right. See, Chang, even though I think Christopher Plummer did a really good job, and he's a great actor, the character lacked that. You you almost, when he's not in the scene, you kind of forget about him because he just didn't have this ominous presence to the film. You know what? It's kind of a minor secondary character until all of a sudden he's the guy. Absolutely. He... Prob- his reveal probably should have been a lot sooner, so they could have cut back to s- to know him pulling the strings. Instead, they were right. trying yeah. to keep us in the dark. That, that exactly, and what was and some of those, him pulling some of those strings would have added to that second act. Could yes. have added some creative measures to that. I wonder if it would have been even better as if they wouldn't have, or or they could have had Chang, but what if they would have brought back um, Christopher Lloyd's character from the third one, whom Kirk kicked into the lava from Genesis, but what if somehow he had survived and he had been right, this mastermind right, pulling the strings the whole and he time. he had this vendetta. Yeah, he could have had yeah. some cool scarring yeah, exactly. as well. Like very much kind of like they could have cribbed very off creative. of Star Wars, like very creative idea. like Anakin. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that could have even made more sense because, and especially even if they would have tied Savic into it, because she was um, her her and um, Christopher Lloyd's character. She she was her prisoner. That's true. And David died for her. And what if that that would have been even a deeper betrayal? Yeah. I think great. so. That would have been a great plot. Uh, I'm I'm a little confused as to why they didn't do some of this. One of the other things I was confused upon was the whole assassination plot at the end. I don't really that just kinda came out of the blue for me is mm-hmm. all of a sudden the Romulans, these Klingons in Admiral Cartwright, who's had bit mm-hmm. parts in right, right. in three and four, I think. He's a traitor all of a sudden? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could. I asked you, I said, who's Admiral Cartwright again? <laughs> He's so bit. We didn't remember who he was. Yeah, that's it. That's true. I, I thought that was an unusual way to reveal the plot. Because that, in essence, that was, you find out at the end, that was what this whole ploy was about, you know, to go and assassinate. But you don't even know that until, oh, by the way, they were going to assassinate this guy. Yeah, I, that just felt kind of confusing for me there at the end is this political assassination i think they could have woven that a little better into the first act Mm -hmm. and it was all it was all a ruse the whole time i was very confused on that and, and that they saved him in the end one of the other positives that i did want to mention that almost is like for this reason alone makes the movie worth it probably is the very end the very final sequence where it's that that shot that pulls out where Kirk is giving his monologue hmm. from the original series, and you just see all of the characters. Just kind of Kirk is in his chair, Uhura standing up. They're all at their positions, standing there, kind of like they're just immortalized. They're going to they're just frozen right. forever. These perpetual characters will always be that way, and it it kind of got me a little emotional. It did, even it did though, me too. Yeah, even though I don't have as close of a tie to it, it just felt like. This is kind of a real, genuine send-off um, for these characters. And uh, you just got to appreciate that these movies ultimately are pretty fun, and they've been doing it for almost 30 years. And the the actors themselves love doing it, and you can tell they have a real love you for the tell. series. That's so true. It, it has... You know, if if you took these movies away from the fun and the originality of that original series, they wouldn't stand on their own at all. They're not that good, but because 
they are by very nature nostalgic. You know, people like me who grew up with the series. Oh, wow, you know, it's back and it's still going 30 years later. That that just has a built-in draw, a built-in magnet to, to a certain fan base. And to see them end with that iconic pose, you know, Kirk in the chair and like you said, all of them there. It was just, it was, it was very moving. It was, and I did like how they incorporated their signatures. Love that over the screen. How yeah, they're autographing their final movie for you. It's beautiful. It was a really cool idea, and we still see that they've they're still taking that idea and putting it in movies today. Like for instance, in Avengers Endgame, at the end it kind of has a homage to all of them. Cool. It's cool, especially because that series has been going for ten years. So, Brad, what is your rating and recommendation for Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country? Well, this is, this is clearly, uh, I had to go a lot for me because the last one was a letdown. That I really, you know, I entered this film and it was one that I had not seen. Somehow I just missed it at that time of life. But I, I really was thinking, wow, what can they do to recover from that old one? So it had to go away, but it did. It did get me there, not as much as the Wrath of Khan, but I, I, it brought me back into the series. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna give it. Well, it's tough. I'm gonna give it a seven, but I'm always a little bit high on my rating because I'm just such a Star Trek fan. Now I will say that although I do think this is one of the better Star Trek stories, I am still a bit torn on this film. It's definitely in the top three so far, but. Is it better than Star Trek 2 and 3? I believed it could have been in the first act, but the storytellers forgot to provide solid intrigue to keep me in the mm-hmm. second act. And by the time the third act rolls around, the film feels too long, and certain reveals took, well, far too long to be known. Plus, I was able to figure them out about halfway through the film. This is the best-looking Star Trek film so far, and the acting and camera work make this feel like Star Trek isn't decrepit anymore it actually has some vitality to it the film just needed a stronger script i'm very close to actually not recommending this one because it did bore me for that middle section but this is still a solid send-off for the original cast they do go out on a high note that gives them all an opportunity to be important not to mention that ending shot alone with the voiceover which nearly brought a tear to my eye makes this film worth recommending albeit a mild one Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, for me, receives 5 stars out of 10. Now, next week, we will be coming back with Star Trek Generations. For the 7th installment, they dropped the 7. It's just called Generations, and it will be taking place with brand new characters. Right. Picard and his crew from the hit TV show that had been going on for a little while now. As far as this, these movies were running... And it's going to have some new characters, and neither of us have seen it. Well, I'm really anxious to see these new ones because uh, back in the day when that first came out, I was such a purist and an idealist that I was like, oh, you can't improve on Captain Kirk, and I don't care where you're going to take this. I'm not going to watch it. So I quit watching them, and I didn't become a Trekkie fan of of, uh, the newer ones. And especially, it just kept going from there. I mean, there's you know several different Star Trek TV series that just, I, I was like, give it a rest, guys. You're not going to improve on the old. But that was just, I'm just kind of that idealist. So I haven't seen him. I'm excited to see him because I know especially that uh, Picard, Patrick Stewart, uh, stood the test of time. He really became, uh, he really 
I, even though I haven't seen a lot, I saw a few TV, a few TV episodes and won some of my respect. So I'm anxious to see him in this film. And it's even cooler because he's coming back in Star Trek Picard. That is That actually excites me. They just jumped over all those others that really didn't, and we're going to bring back one that I think was, you know, exciting. I, I'm very excited to see the next film, to see what they're able to do with these new characters. And I think they probably brought it in at the right time because it had been on television. Fans really loved the show, and making the leap to the big screen is a pretty big deal. I have watched half of the Star Trek The Next Generation pilot and from what I've been able to tell, it's pretty interesting so far. It very much has a feel of the original TV show, but with new characters. And I, I'm just intrigued to see what they'll do with these new Picard films. So, listeners, thank you so much for joining us on our review of Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. What do you think about this film? Is this a great send-off for the crew? Would you have liked to have seen another sequel starring the original cast? We're interested to know what you think, so leave us a comment in the comments section down below. Even if you're on Facebook or Twitter, post it there as well and especially on the website and one way that you can support us for free listeners is if you're listening on itunes right now go ahead and leave us a five-star rating no that's not to inflate our egos that's help us to be noticed in the ranking so other people that are looking for a fun movie review podcast that they can join a community of film lovers they're able to find that podcast a lot easier that way over on the itunes page and of course if you're on google podcasts or any other place go ahead and click that subscribe button so you won't miss next week's review and all of the other great reviews we uh, are planning on doing we're going to come back with the m night Shyamalan series very soon go ahead and catch up on those right now you do have time before we will be doing the remaining of his series we also have all the terminator films leading up to dark fate and we will be coming back to review rambo last blood so don't forget to check out, we, that was our very first retrospective series. Check that out in the archives. Listen to our thoughts on all four Rambo films before we review the next one coming out in theaters next month. And of course, just a reminder, if you do want to uh, support us financially, which really does help pay for the bandwidth, the storage, the hosting here, it's not free. The Monday show will always remain free, though, but if you want to help us out, Help us keep the lights on and also get some exclusive bonus content in the meantime. That's always yours to keep. You drink a Starbucks cup of coffee, it's gone. Well, for that price, you can get some great bonus content over on our Patreon page. The link is in the description below. It tells you everything that you'll need to know and find out. So, Brad, thank you for joining me. Hey, it's been great fun. Thank you for having me. Listeners, we will see you next week with Star Trek Generations.